0: Alright, we're about to start in just a few moments. Are there people outside? No? We're good? Alright, welcome guys to the gathering and today we'll be discussing something that is very important for all of us. Just before I introduce our speaker for the day and to explain a little bit what the gathering Jakarta is about, let us just open with a word of prayer. Dear Father in Heaven, we thank you so much that you've gathered us here together and I just pray Father that today we just want to be thankful for the freedom that we have to open your word in a such a comfortable place where we can talk about your word freely in freedom Lord and I just pray that today's workshop will be fruitful for all of us and we're thankful to, we're thankful for the gift of your son that we can just be here and we can come to know you. And we thank you that your spirit is here with us, guiding us and opening up our minds, opening up our hearts. And Father, I just pray that as we talk about your word, that you would just bring us into a deeper worship of you, that all creation uh, comes, Lord Father, to sing about you and to extol your glory and to sing praises of how great you are. So thank you. We're thankful for this moment. We're just... Grateful for this time and opportunity, and just uh, guide us today as we talk about something that's going to be important for all of us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, welcome to the gathering, Jakarta. Uh, Today's seminar will be an important one for all of us as we will be discussing the relationship between the role of the church and the role of the state. And therefore, what we talk about today will have direct implications to the way we understand. Human life, especially public life. Just before I introduce the speaker for us, who is not a stranger or needs any extensive introduction, I just want to take this opportunity to talk about the gathering, especially for all of you who are here for the first time with us. We just want to say we are grateful to have you here with us. But the gathering, Jakarta, has a goal that has always been and will always be about proclaiming the redemptive message of Jesus Christ, normed by the Reformed faith and tradition, to spread the good news of grace and mercy to a city in which we think desperately needs it. And we will do this by focusing on three areas, or three things. And first, cultural engagement. Second, theological education in the church. And third, mediating the gap between Academic academic theology and church. Check. That's better. Sorry about that. And so, just to recap. First, cultural engagement. Second, theological education in the local church. And third, mediating the gap between academic theology and the local church. So let me explain just briefly about these three dimensions and so that we can get a better understanding of why we're here gathered to talk about what we're about to talk about. First, cultural engagement. The Gathering Jakarta exists to engage culture by hosting seminars and conferences that address the question of biblical application to every aspect of life. The thing that we're doing here today is one that caters to this purpose that we're aiming to achieve. Second, the Gathering Jakarta exists to provide theological resource to the local church around the city by hosting classes in their churches who see the need for theological education for their pastors and congregants. I know that Stephen Gunawan has been working together with Kaye in hosting classes, and he is actually hosting a seminar tonight, which is really exciting. And we are also working closely together with HMCC in hosting future potential classes in which we can provide theological training to their pastors and leaders. Third, the gathering seeks to provide a platform for local theologians, especially Reformed theologians who are seeking a platform to exercise their gifts in equipping other people with theology. So in doing, in doing these three, we hope that we may all see and understand that Reformed theology does not lead people to shy away from cultural engagement. Rather, Reformed theology encourages us to seek gospel-driven transformation in every aspect of human life in the city that we live in. So if you are interested to know more about The Gathering Jakarta, please visit our website, www.thegatheringjakarta.com, for more information about the vision and the mission, the leadership, and also the upcoming events that we have in this year. So without further ado, our speaker today is one who we know really well, or too well, perhaps, he is the, one of the founders of the Gathering Jakarta. He is—he has been equipping us with good, robust reform theological training in the past two or three years. And he is a graduate from Biola University in philosophy and biblical studies who went on to Westminster Theological Seminary to earn his Master of Arts in Religion and is now finishing his doctorate degree in Edinburgh University studying the life and works of the Dutch theologian Herman Bavinck, So let us together welcome Gray Sitando.
1: Thanks so much, El. Oh. <coughs> There's actually one extra piece of handouts here. You, uh, anybody need a copy maybe? I know who to give it to I here you go, man. <laughs> All right, guys, welcome again to the Gathering Jakarta. We're going to talk about a lot of things today. You may feel like in the next uh, 75 minutes or so that you're going to be a little bit drinking from a fire hose, but I hope that's not going to be too much the case. There's going to be a lot of stuff here. I've, I've really tried hard to boil it down to just the essentials. Just the essentials, but I think, I think we're going to have a fruitful time. Before we uh, begin officially again, I think we'd just like to uh, open us up in another prayer. Father, this is your world, this is your city. We are your people. We pray, Father, that everything we do is not in vain. We pray, Lord God, that we do it, therefore, towards your glory so that in the final day, Father, when you come back and you judge our works, we would not be exposed as, as, uh, as, as failures of witnessing to your world and, and, and to your church, Father, but we would be faithful communicating the truth, the whole counsel of God, as revealed in your word in a way that glorifies you, pleasing to you, Father, and nourishes your people, your church. I pray, therefore, that in our teaching today that this will not be a mere academic exercise. This will not merely train our, our brains, Father, but we would be informed so that we may be moved and convinced, Father, to live differently in your world. May we be uh, helpful to others around us. May we witness to you and your city in the future as we live today. And Father, may your spirit be with us in this room as we, as we think about tough things together. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. We will do all this for you. Amen. Thanks, guys. Today is going to be really fascinating. We're going to talk a lot about Christianity and the world, the church, and public life. What is the relationship between Christianity and culture? What is the relationship between how we live in the church and how we live outside the church? What is the relationship between the state and the church? You know, in, in the brochure that we, we put, posted out there on, on social media, we're asking three questions there. Is there such a thing as a Christian nation? Uh, are we called to pursue a Christian state? Are we called to pursue redeeming the city in such a way that we can say that Jakarta is a Christian city or Indonesia as a Christian nation? Is this going to be a, a call for us as Christians? Is there, such a, is there such a command for us as Christians to, in other words, go for cultural transformation? And if we do that, how do we do that? Do we do that from the state? Do we do that from the church? These are difficult and very significant questions that we need to address. And let me just preface all of these things by saying that I come to you today not as a politician. I have no political credentials to that order. I don't come with technical skills in public life. I don't come to you with experiential knowledge. That's not what I'm here for. I come to you today as a theologian. And we come together today as Christians. So I think fundamentally what we need to address and inform us about is theologically, what do we do as Christians living in a, in a city where not everybody is Christians? What do we do with the state? And biblically and theologically speaking, what does it all have to say about all of these things? So I'm not, I'm not going to come at it from an angle of a, of a practicing politician or a practicing public theologian. I'm going to come at it from a perspective from the Bible. I'm going to come at it as a theologian first and primarily. So we're going to go through deep theological ideas and paradigms to help inform our our answers to those questions of whether we should pursue cultural transformation, whether we should pursue a, a Christian state and a Christian nation. So we get where we're potentially going. And if you guys want to ask any questions, ask me a question just immediately. Don't worry about it. Just ask a question. Just raise up your hand and we'll stop and we'll address those questions so that we could help be clear to one another and so I could be clear to you as well. Is that clear to everybody where we're going today? All right. So I think this is a really very particularly important uh, topic today, guys. I think in a context like Jakarta, especially, we have the tendency to go to two different mistakes, two different opposite mistakes. The first mistake that we... Always go to I feel like in Jakarta, and in the context of answering this question, the relationship between Christianity and public life, Christianity and state, Christianity and culture, is the mistake of dualism is the mistake of dualism. This first mistake argues that Christianity is to be detached from the world. Christianity is about coming to church on Sunday and making sure that your faith, is limited to Sunday, dedicated to Sunday, and therefore your faith has no implications from Monday all the way to Saturday. Whatever you do in the church is functionally irrelevant to what you do from Monday to Saturday, such that your Christian identity is limited to Sunday, and therefore whatever you do from Monday to Saturday is oftentimes communicated as justified by how much you give on Sunday, uh, whether it be in tithes and offerings or how much time you give on Sunday. And so there is no question about how do we live as Christians in the day-to-day life. In other words, there's no question of how, being, how to be a public Christian in a way that your public Christian identity is clear and evident to everybody else around you. And so this manifests itself in different ways, and we've been hitting at this for a lot of times this past year, right? We had Dr. Vincent Baycote come from Wheaton just last month, and we had Tezar talk about this two months ago. We talk about how God cares about your work, that God created you to work, and there are ways to glorify God through your work in a way that is different from how non Christians are supposed to function in this city. And Dr. Baycote hit that really, really hard, and we want to avoid dualism at all costs. We see this rampantly all around Jakarta. We see it, for example, I, I mentioned this just a month ago, about how we call uh, our our pastors Hamba Hambatuhan, you know? And 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 nobody else are called Hambatuhan. Right? People ask you, people ask me sometimes, grey mo full time ya you Tuhan know? hambatuhan oh, berarti greater responsibility. lebih tinggi daripada yang lain, gitu kan? That means that you have an added responsibility that other normal Christians don't have, right? And that's the perspective that we have in Jakarta, we encounter every day in the local church. Oh, you're a theologian, so you have these regulations, you have these norms that you need to abide to, but me, oh, I'm just a businessman, or I'm just doing this, I'm just going to live with the world, you know? Those norms that you adhere to, great, don't apply to me. There's a functional, very strong dualism that we encounter in Jakarta in that order. And the second, I think, uh, mistake that we want to avoid, and it's the opposite side of the spectrum, and I, I do think we see this rapidly as well, is called triumphalist transformationalism. That's a mouthful. Gotta make sure I spelled this right triumphalist transformationalism. And, and we see this in a lot of the best-selling books that you see in Gramedia, Books and Beyond, Kinokunia, right? You see books entitled something like this, Nine Kingdom Principles for a Good Life, or Ten Habits of Healthy Biblical Eating, or, you know, Godly Kingdom Living, And normally, you know, the picture on the front cover is a guy smiling, beautiful smile, doing like this, right? And uh, you have these books, and the premise of each and every single one of these books is this. The Bible is a guidebook for every area of life. And if you follow the Bible in this area of life, whether it be eating or financial management, whatever it may be, you will be more successful at what you do. If you follow these nine kingdom principles, if you follow what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount if you follow what Ezekiel ate in his fast, right, you're going to become a more healthy, a more wealthy, or a more successful person. And and I want you to know that this is not exactly the prosperity gospel. right? The prosperity gospel says that if you truly obey and love God, God will show his favor to you by making sure that everything runs well for you. The prosperity gospel, the focus is on God's favor to you, and the favor manifests itself in health and wealth. This is a little bit more subtle than that. This is not saying that if you just be faithful to God and be, and, and be, be uh, really throw your life for him, God will be favorable to you through health and wealth. This is actually saying that the Bible is kind of like a, a textbook. The Bible is a textbook for financial management. The Bible is a textbook for, for how you run your city. The Bible is a textbook for how you should eat well. And, and these other views, basically triumphalist transformationalism, argue that because the Bible is a guidebook for every area of life, you could transform your life if you just triumphalistically or hopefully follow what the Bible says. It's triumphalist because you're going to expect a one-to-one correlation between what you do when you follow the Bible and your success. It's transformational because it's arguing that the Bible is such a textbook that if you follow it, everything around your life will transform. Does that make sense, guys? And you you see the mistake in this view is, 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 is the view that the Bible is, is primarily a textbook for earthly matters. That the Bible is primarily a textbook for earthly matters. That the Bible shows us in detail what to do for you to be successful in these areas of life. But that's not what the Bible is for, right? If a pastor comes to you and, and turns to uh, the dietary laws of Leviticus and tells you this is how you should be healthy, he's missed the point of Leviticus. You see what I mean? If, if I come up to you and I, and I open the Bible to the Sermon on the Mount and I tell you that the Sermon on the Mount is how you become more successful in your business, I've misread the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Bible is primarily a spiritual book that deals about the Christian life. It talks primarily about the gospel according to which you are a sinner and you need redemption in Jesus Christ. In other words, interpretively, hermeneutically, when you read the Bible, you read it for the end of Jesus, for the Christian life. It's not a textbook for financial or health uh, purposes. Does that make sense, guys? So on on the one hand, you have a dualism that says the Bible is completely irrelevant for me from Monday to Saturday, and you have a triumphalist transformationalism that says that the Bible is so about every other area of life, that you end up functionally using it as a guidebook, and and extreme versions of this, uh, you could see in when you, for example, uh, maybe maybe you told somebody that you want to go to business school, and they say you don't need to go to business school; you just need to know the Bible. Or cross forms of this says that you know you don't need to learn medicine; you just need to be faithful and follow the Bible's guides on prayer for you to become more healthy. See, these these are cross forms of that, but there are also sophisticated forms of that in church history, where you have all new societies created by Christians, and then maybe for the, for, the, for the mayor to rule that place well, they would argue, everybody needs to follow the Sermon on the Mount. So Christians could have to go out of their cities, create a whole new city, and have the Bible be the center of everything in such a way where, where everybody needs to follow the Sermon on the Mount, and if you don't follow the Sermon on the Mount, or the Ten Commandments, or the Old Testament laws in more extreme forms, you would be put into prison or punished in different ways. So there are crass and really extreme forms of this, and there are crass and really extreme forms of this. Those are, I think, the two twin errors that we see in Jakarta. And I think every single one of us can testify that they've seen that before. I think we can agree on that, right? So this is not controversial. And so the, where we're going to go today is address these two issues and look towards the Reformed tradition and take a look at what the Reformed tradition has said on these matters. And we want to do it in such a way where we show that these two errors are always resisted. And as it turns out, that when we look at the reform, there are two views on this issue. There are two views on this issue. And we'll see how much we can cover them today. The first view is called the two-kingdom view. The two-kingdom view. The second view, and we'll get to that later, hopefully, is called the two-cities view. The two things sound incredibly similar, but they're not, as we're going to see. But but they're both Reformed. You could be a Reformed theologian, you could be a Reformed Christian, and advocate for either one of these things. The two views are strongly within the Reformed tradition. And what unites these two things is that they realize that, biblically speaking, there are at least five things you need to know and and balance. I know I hate that word in different contexts, but I think here it's appropriate. There are five things that are very complex for us that both views want to accommodate and respect. The first thing that they need to accommodate is Christ's lordship over all. Both of these views argue that Christ is indeed Lord over all things. That he is not rule over your life in only one area of your life. He is not the ruler over just one domain of creation. But following Colossians 1, 15 to 20, Christ cares about all things. Christ cares about all creation. And he wants to come back and renew all of creation. That's one aspect that they need to both appreciate, these two views. The second thing that they need to appreciate... Is understanding that the Christian is supposed to be obedient in every area of life. Every area of life. That the Christian is not to live dichotomistically or dualistically. Both views agree on that. Both views also agree that the Christian's final destination is a heavenly city. that what we're working toward is not a final Jakarta or a final Jerusalem in the sense where we come back to Israel or Jakarta is going to be universalized. What we are working for is is a final city, not created by human hands, but would be brought in by God himself unilaterally apart from human work. Does that make sense? We're not working to progressively transform the world such that we become a Christian utopia but rather the final city is a heavenly city. It's a spiritual city in the sense where God himself is the worker of that city. It's going to be brought in by God unilaterally, and therefore our hope is not in present human achievement, but in future God's work. Does that make sense? Both views also agree on that. The fourth view, the fourth, I mean the fourth aspect that both views want to respect is that the church is central. And primary. That if you're called to be a Christian, your primary calling, first and foremost, is to respect and work hard within the context of the church. That the church is your calling, first and foremost. And therefore, you as a Christian, your call as well is to further the purposes of the church through evangelism, through preaching, through counseling, the administration of the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. The church is always going to be primary. And so, from the pulpit, you're not supposed to advocate for, for example, a political party as the church's primary responsibility or a Christian's primary responsibility or some social justice issue. The church and the gospel is always central to the mission of the Christian life. Yet at the same time, we also understand that the church is meant to be a salt and light. The Christian individuals are meant to be salt and light in this world. In other words, what do we mean by salt? What do we mean by light? Salt preserves all of society. It makes things better, right? If you're a salt of the earth, what I think Jesus means is that you preserve human society. You make it so that people can flourish within it. That there's peace within it. That there's justice upheld in it. That mercy is being administered through the care of the poor and the widows and the orphans. And if you're a source of light, then the world is supposed to see you as a source of truth, that you speak truth into it, and, and that people can know Jesus through you. This is in the context of, of the language of, say, you're an ambassador of Christ of 2 Corinthians 5, or that, you, of course, you know, Jesus' sermons as well. But notice that these five aspects can get very complicated immediately, right? These five aspects are, are complicated very immediately. And and these two positions emerge as different positions because they're trying to respect all five aspects. If Jesus is the Lord over all things in life, right, does this mean that we should come and and expect that a political party leader to preach a sermon every time he addresses the public? But I thought Jesus is Lord over all things of life. Right? That that's a tough question. If the church is central, right, how much should we emphasize mercy ministry to the non Christian poor? And if the church is central, should we say to other people that you have a Christian calling to not be working in the church? And so you get sometimes preaching in Jakarta as well that says, right, if you want to be a true Christian, you gotta be a pastor or you gotta be an evangelist, you've gotta travel as a missionary. But that doesn't seem right either. You need to be a salt and light of the world. But how does that fare with the church as an institution that you meet on Sunday? That worship of God is central in the Christian life. And if you're working for a heavenly city, it's a city brought in by God in a future sense. In what way is Christ Lord over all things today? Isn't everything just going to perish anyway, right? In what sense is Christ's presence and Lord today today? When the heavenly city we long for, where Christ truly is Lord over all things, still in the future. You see, these are really complicated theological questions. And by trying to balance out or work through and respect and accommodate all five aspects, these two positions arise. Does that make sense, everybody? Does anybody have a question so far? We're going, we're going at a pretty fast speed, I realize. But everybody's hanging with me? everybody's hanging with me. So notice again, right, five axiomatic claims, five non-debatable claims, five statements that ground both of these views, five things that both views respect and agree upon and want to work out of. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay, so just have those five things in mind as we go through each. And whatever I say about each, just remember that they don't compromise these five things, or at least... These two views don't think that you're compromising these five things. So we're going to turn now to Two Kingdom Theology, Two Kingdom Theology. And for each of these views, again, we'll see how far we go. We're going to take a look at what they say about metaphysics. We're going to take a look at what they say about epistemology and also about ethics. These are the three aspects that we're going to take a look at for each of these positions. Metaphysics has to do with reality. What does this position say about what the nature of reality is? What is fundamental? How do we categorize what we see? What are things? Metaphysics has to do with reality. Epistemology has to do with knowledge. How do we know what we know? What do we use to know what we know? Maybe some of you guys went to IB schools, right? Who went to IB? Who took TOK, right? TOK, all right, you know, I'm a TOK kid as well. Epistemology is TOK. How do we know what we know? How do we use our reason? What's the role between faith and reason, the Bible and reason? And ethics is pretty self-explanatory, I think. What do we do? How do we live in light of metaphysics, in light of epistemology? Ethics has to do with how you live, what you do. So Metaphysics has to do with being or reality. Epistemology has to do with knowledge and knowing and how we know. Ethics has to do with doing and acting and living. These three things are interrelated for both two-kingdom theology and two-cities theology. Now, fundamental to the two-kingdom system is this. Wow, I just destroyed my pen. Sorry, guys. Give me a minute here. Okay. So, the two-kingdom theology argues that there is, metaphysically, or in terms of being, essentially two realms. Two realms in God's present creation. At first, is called a realm of nature. A realm of nature. And in the realm of nature is what persists and exists by virtue of God's creation. It's always been there, and it's always meant to be there. And how we know what belongs to the realm of nature is by one of their principal representatives, a theologian named David Van Drunen. Uh, So in DVD, in your uh, outline, doesn't mean DVD player, right? It actually goes for uh, David Van Drunen. So in his book called Living in God's Two Kingdoms, David Van Drunen, argues that whatever is in the realm of nature is whatever exists and persists through creation, and whatever is in common between believers and non-believers. Whatever is in common between believers and non-believers. Let me ask you guys this question, for example. Um, Is is the institute of family a natural product? And you're going to ask this question. Do believers and unbelievers both have families? Yes, right? Boom. So nature means the realm of families. Family is a product of nature. How about um, schooling? Do both Christians and non-Christians go to schools? Okay, the school as an institute is part of the natural realm. How about the marketplace? Do Christians and non-Christians have businesses and engage in the marketplace? Yes. So things like the marketplace... Now, what about the state? You Christians and non-Christians engage in, in the state? Right? It's a natural realm as well, because for him, whatever is in common between Christians and non-Christians by virtue of creation is in the natural realm. That's David Van Joonan's argument. And for him, the spiritual uh, kingdom, which is on this side of things, this the, the bottom is a natural common kingdom, the, the top tier is a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And it's a, it's a kingdom of grace. There is the gracious order, there's the natural order. There's a spiritual kingdom, there's a common kingdom. This is where we get the two-kingdom theology. There are two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms. And in the spiritual kingdom, is basically the realm in which only Christians participate in. The realm only Christians participate in. And what's an obvious example of this? Church. Boom. You guys are falling really well. That's great. Church, right? The church. So David Van Junen's rhetoric and argument is basically, what separates Christians from others... It's not in what they do in nature and in the common kingdom, but what they do in the spiritual kingdom. Christians administer baptism. Christians Sabbath on Sundays. Christians listen to the preached word. Christians study the Bible. Christians uh, uh, take the Lord's Supper. What separates Christians from non-Christians is simply that they belong to the spiritual kingdom on top of the fact they're already living in the natural kingdom. That's the fundamental metaphysical belief of David Van Drunen and, and the two kingdom uh, theologians. They argue that reality, right, what has to do with being, metaphysics, is composed out of two fundamental kingdoms. And Christians can be citizens of both kingdoms, right? When you go on Sunday, you're reminded that you go to a spiritual kingdom. But When you go on Monday, you need to understand that you are now coming into the natural kingdom. And what applies to the spiritual kingdom does not necessarily apply to the natural kingdom. One obvious example we're going to go at this when we go to ethics is think about the role of the state in this issue. Van Drunen will ask questions like this. What if you have a judge, for example, in the law judicial system that encounters a criminal, and in the middle of the defense, the criminal repents and becomes a Christian? What is the judge to do in that context? Now think, is the law court system a natural kingdom or a spiritual kingdom? Natural, right? natural. Now, if there was a judge in that sort of situation and let's say he's a Christian and the criminal repents right in front of him, weeps and sings "Hail Mary," or something like that, right or amazing grace in a, in a, in a, in a, in a Protestant context, right, is um, what do we what is the judge supposed to do? I'm hearing whispers. Punish him, right? Okay, so the judge has to say that repentance in that context is irrelevant to the present judicial situation, right? The judge is going to say in this context that this is not a church, but this is the law, and therefore justice still needs to be upheld, and repentance is not a matter to be considered in that context, right? Because it's part of the natural order, but let's say that same judge happens to be a uh, church elder, and this person goes to his church, and they meet on Sunday, you know, before he goes to jail. <laughs> maybe, maybe, right? They meet on Sunday before he goes to jail, and what's the judge to do in that context? And let's say he now wants to go, to, wants to go and be baptized by the same judge. What, what's he going to say? Baptize him and what? Restore him to fellowship, and maybe he'll end up visiting him every time they go to jail and have a Bible study together or something, right? But notice, this is this is. The, I want you guys to feel the intuitive pull of this. I want you guys to be kind of, kind of see the 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 persuasiveness of Van Juenen's idea, right? It's very rational. It's very clear. Uh, very obvious, almost, right? So so when, he, when the judge as judge needs to punish and vindicate according to the law, the judge as elder has to restore him into fellowship and give him baptism and give him the right for the sacraments, right? So notice then, you see the persuasive pull of Van Junen's argument there, right? And, and so, so that's, that's, we're jumping ahead to the ethical here, but, but let's stay with the metaphysical really quickly. Here's Van Junen's further claim and argument in terms of the metaphysical beliefs of the two kingdom theology. Look at the first quote. Look at the first quote that I posted there on your, your notes. If there is a problem with the things of this present creation, it does not lie with the fact that they are physical and visible. In other words, he is not saying that the spiritual kingdom is inherently superior because it's quote-unquote spiritual and not material or physical or visible. But with the fact that they belong to a present creation that was never meant to be the final home of the human race. What's he saying? He's saying that, What we need to understand about this natural realm is that this natural realm is not supposed to last in the first place. He has a very tantalizing argument in his book to the effect that if Adam had obeyed God and ate the fruit of life, creation would have been destroyed still, and a new creation would have taken over its place. Adam was placed in a world that was never meant to last in the first place and even if adam had obeyed that creation would have been completely destroyed wiped out perished to make way for a completely new creation so for him after the fall even what endures after uh, uh, after the last judgment is only the spiritual kingdom only the church and the resurrected body of the believers last after the final judgment in such a way that nature and everything found in nature, he argues, including families, schools, marketplace, and states will no longer last. And he's going to point to a lot of biblical passages, right? Think about Jesus' claims that in heaven we neither marry or are given in marriage. Right? So there's no more families, right? These are the kind of passages that that Van Joonan would appeal to to argue that nature in its present form will be completely gone And whatever the new creation is, even though it's physical, even though it's material, even though we'll have resurrected bodies, will be fundamentally different from everything that we see in this present life. And whatever we do as Christians in the natural order will not make it to the new creation. There's a complete discontinuity between the natural realm today and the new creation in the future. So if I'm going to map this out real quick, guys, is that for Van Drunen, nature one day will be completely wiped out. What matters, therefore, is the church. And now, in the new creation, we are going to see a theocratic rule of God. A new creation, a new heaven, a new earth that had nothing to do with the present natural order and built on top and the basis of the resurrected body of the church. So, he really dislikes any talk of, uh, well, to give an example in our context, Tim Keller. When Tim Keller argues that your work matters because the glory of the nations, or the products of your culture, will make it to the final uh, eschaton, the final day on the final new creation, David Van Joon will shake his head and say... No, look at the next quote. The products of present human culture are doomed to destruction with the natural order itself. You cannot infer that the present human culture will bring in anything to the new creation. It's a, it's a complete discontinuity thesis. So this is the fundamental metaphysical view of, of Van Joonan. We're going to skip, I think, the Noahic Covenant. And, and notice, therefore, that there is a complete distinction between grace as above nature. The two don't significantly overlap in the present order. Nature will pass away, making new for the new creation. Grace is attached to nature, above it, and not within it. Grace is attached to nature and above it. And for Van Junin, this actually frees us Christians. This frees us Christians from talk of redeeming culture. Talk of redeeming the city. Talk of redeeming businesses. Talk of redeeming education or transforming education or transforming culture. For Van Junin, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, Christians get redeemed. Christians get transformed. But there's no meaningful sense in which schools or the marketplace or anything like that could be transformed or redeemed. That's kind of the upshot of this two-kingdom theology. Now, let me just say a few things about the, the epistemological side of things, epistemologically. Per Van Junin, therefore, to understand that there are two kingdoms and two different uh, norms that apply for the natural kingdom and the spiritual kingdom, means that Scripture is not to be used at all in the natural realm. Scripture is not to be used at all in the natural realm. Scripture is for the spiritual kingdom. And of course, he's going to make fun of the of transformationalists and, and others uh, like me. I don't, I, just to be clear, I'm not a two-kingdom theologian, but I'm just trying to present it in a way that if Van Joonan was here, I think he would agree with what I'm saying. He's going to say that there is nothing specifically Christian about Christian businesses. There's nothing that Scripture says about businesses, so there's nothing specifically Christian about businesses. There's nothing specifically Christian about Christian cooking. There isn't a Christian economics, Christian cooking, Christian businesses, Christian states. There's no such thing. All you get are Christian believers. Why? Because for him, Scripture doesn't apply to any of those areas. To use Scripture in those areas is to misunderstand the purpose of Scripture. Think about the the triumphalist transformationalists at this point he's going to argue that the fundamental error for these transformationalists is that they're using Scripture for the wrong purposes. For, so for the common kingdom, right? So I erased it because I was trying to show that for Van Junin's going to perish. For the, for the natural common kingdom, what is supposed to be the norm for how we know how to do things? Not scripture, but what he calls natural law. Natural law, what do I mean by that? Natural law simply refers to uh, the, the laws of reason and morality. It doesn't refer to laws of physics. He's not talking about that. He doesn't refer to biological laws. He's talking about laws that govern general rationality and, and general morality. He would say, his argument goes like, like this. The rhetoric could, could sound like this. You don't need the Bible to tell people to be good people. You don't need the Bible to tell people, or, or business people, to be honest in their work. You don't need the Bible to tell the Christian, uh, to tell the states, the statesmen, and then the general public, for them to, to enforce justice, for them to be honest, hardworking people. And to make it even more absurd, he's going to argue, you don't need the Bible to plumb Things. If you want to be a Christian plumber, you don't open the Bible to be a good plumber. You don't open the Bible to be a good chef. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, what you need to be a good chef or a good plumber is good plumbing skills and good cooking skills. Simply speaking, there is no use of the Bible in those contexts. Sure, of course, the Bible will transform your paradigm or things like that. He will admit that. But fundamentally speaking, if you're in the natural kingdom, there is... No use for scripture. Natural law is sufficient in and of itself. If you just make people and give people rational arguments, good, reasonable, sound arguments for them on how they live their lives and how they work, you are good. You're good to go. And so James K. Smith writes this. James K. Smith is actually critiquing Van Junen here. But he's, he's describing what Van Junen believes. So he says... For Van Junin, the specificity of Christian faith does not apply to such civil, cultural, and temporal labors. Hangmen and hairdressers, soldiers and sous-chefs are all merely temporal vocations for which Christian revelation is irrelevant. While we hope that soldiers and sous-chefs are attending to their eternal destiny in the church during the rest of the week, we simply hope that they operate according to the dictates of natural law. You guys see how it's very systematic, right? If you believe that the spiritual kingdom is completely distinct from the natural kingdom, that if you believe that Christians actually uh, are in two different realms, right, whether they're going Sunday or Monday to Saturday, Van Joon's argument is that you obey God by obeying your natural law and your natural reason outside of the church, but you obey God through scripture within the church. You see what I mean? It's all very systematically connected. Third, so ethically, what are some implications of this before we, we pause for some questions? Van Junin is going to argue that the church is central and an end in itself. There is no call to redeem the natural realm of work. There are general human work, and Christians are called to participate in them. We've seen this a little bit already. Van Junin is basically saying that we are going to work in the world as fundamentally exiles, as fundamentally citizens of a a future reality. And therefore, the church and what you do in the church is central. Pastors and Christians have no obligation and and no imperative, no command, to call Christians to specific vocations. There is no inherently better work, more Christian work than others. He even actually commends the... Why, you know, James K. Smith mentioned, mentioned hangman in his quote, right? He actually commenced the view that if you are a Christian and you work for the church, vocations like being a hangman in the 17th or 16th century is completely open for you. Because it's a natural kingdom, it's going to perish anyway. So you can engage in the public cultural affairs, including work in vocations like hangman, without being a hangman, without your conscience being bound uh, against that. And he's basically going to argue that the church is central, and therefore when we go into the public sphere, remember that you are not a citizen there. Be detached from it. Uh, Joyously obey God through it. But remember, it's not going to last. He calls for joyous, modest, detached work. And therefore he says that any Christian is free to do any work. When we ask for God about what callings you are supposed to have, you're not fundamentally to ask, Lord, am I supposed to go into the business world or to the whatever world for me to help and, and, and influence that culture in a Christian way? For him, you could ask that question and say, whatever seems to happen to you and whatever job you happen to get, just be content. Just remember that it's not the end of it. It's not something specific to you. Remember that it's not going to last. It will perish. So here's the quote from Van Joonan. to to show that I'm not just making all these things up. It is therefore unhelpful to describe our common kingdom in activities in terms of transformation. And it is inaccurate to describe them in terms of redemption. We are still dealing with the activities of this world and the affairs of the common kingdom. And the reason why I italicize that is, is to remember for Van Joonan, this world and the common kingdom do not last. We do not seek a uniquely Christian way to perform these activities and order these affairs, but we conduct ourselves as sojourners and exiles who share them in common with the unbelievers and do not really feel at home when pursuing them. As far as you can go, make peace with the unbelievers. As far as you can go, just be okay with whatever you do. As far as you can go, be honest, be just, obey God. But there is no call to redeem or transform culture in any meaningful sense in this paradigm. Um, just as a side note, for for Van Joonan, what does this mean? As well, if the the church is central, for Van Dunen, social justice in a general way, social mercy, help for the poor in any general way, does not apply to the church. For Van Dunen, Christians and the church only care for the Christian poor and the Christian widows and the Christian orphans. It is not the mission and task of the church to generally care for widows in general, the poor in general. For, for Van Joon, if the church really is central, and what lasts and what matters is a spiritual kingdom ultimately, then the Christian poor, the Christian widow, and the Christian orphans is what it means for us to pursue social justice. It's not a general justice, in other words. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but um, I, uh, I generally find that detestable. But um, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, The political common realm is a way to regulate peace and justice amidst religious diversity. And this is ordained by God's decree, preservation, and approval. This is ordained by God's decree, preservation, and approval. I want you guys to notice here that I I, I italicize that word approval. Because for Van Joonan, this is the way it's supposed to be. Christians going into the public sphere where there are believers and non-believers alike... That's the way it's supposed to be in this present order. In other words, for you to think that it should be any different is a misguided assumption. This present order is not only decreed by God and preserved by God to be such that Christians and non-believers work together in many public spheres, uh, but God approves of it. That's okay. That's fine. Just bear it out, live with it, and obey God through it. Obey God through it. Now, do you guys see the persuasive appeal of this though? You don't? I see a couple of nods and a couple of shaking heads. But let's let's pause there and let's just let's just reflect for, for a minute though and, and, and let's ask some questions. Alright, Sam Sam Sams nodding his head, you know. Why do you find this? Why do you find this quite persuasive, or why do you find there's a persuasive pull to it? I could put you on the spot, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Why? Thank you Sam yeah how about how about the rest of us what, what do we think about this let's pause here and have a little bit of a discussion my kingdom's not of this world okay so we do have that sort of talk in the cross right yeah so did you see the persuasive he's good. he loves that verse you know um, there are some verses that he keeps he keeps coming back to you know first Corinthians 7 the form of this present world is perishing there's, there's that stuff the the exile imagery that we get in first Peter we're chosen exiles where we're living amongst Babylonians right we are we're we're not at home in this world, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so, uh, he would argue that in terms of the role of the church, uh, evangelism is absolutely primary, so before you take care of the general public in terms of their financial or, or physical needs, the first thing you need to do as a church is evangelize, as evangelize. He would argue, the basic rhetoric is, um, uh, that's what they need first, right? That's what they need first, um. You can take care of their physical needs, but if you don't take care of their primarily spiritual need, I mean, you know, what are you really what were your priorities, right? And and he would he would point to some verses as well in the book of Acts where they talk about caring for the widows. There are like little clauses in those verses that says among the disciples. Care for the widows among the disciples. Um, he loves those phrases and he'll point it out, you know. Um, so that's that's where that's where he would go. This is a very influential view, especially um in, in North American circles. So is it saying that if you think that as Christian, you don't necessarily have to engage in this work. We don't have to contribute to society, we don't have to do uh policy making that like quality price. What's the point? Right. Why clean a sinking ship, right? Yeah. Um well he's gonna completely deny that. He's going to completely deny that. He'll say, I'm all for cultural activism and cultural engagement. But it has to be detached. It has to be in a way that you know it's not going to last. So he's, he's going to argue, for example, um, just as, uh, you know, the book of Daniel. Daniel and the Israelites are in exile in Babylon. Just as Daniel and the Israelites know that they're not going to be in Babylon forever it doesn't stop them from being in high positions in Babylonia by engaging in their education, by 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 entering into their official state's ranks. Uh, he would say, the point is just obedience. Like, you're called to do that, even though it's not going to last. The book of Daniel becomes really important in this theology. Okay, we've seen a couple of biblical... Uh, okay, sorry, Lucas, yeah. He would admit that to be the case, but he would say that um, so long as that's not the central rhetoric or command that the church is proclaiming week in and week out. It's always, firstly, to take care of the Christian poor and the Christian widows. Okay, we've seen a couple of, you know, persuasive lines of argument from biblical texts. Can you guys think of motifs or passages in scripture that may give the two-kingdom theologians some pause and trouble? Because, guys, I'm a two cities guy, but and we're gonna get there. But I just want you guys to know that this is a really complicated debate. It's not exactly simple, and um, that's why it's a, it's an intro reform debate. And any motifs from scripture that that would push back against the two kingdom guy, two kingdom theologian. These are smiling. I don't know why. But, uh, <laughs> Mm-hmm. right yeah so notice what do you think the two kingdom diligent would say in response to you yeah so he would just he would just look look at Daniel right it's not going to last he's going to he knows he's going to come back We be restored from exile he knows it's not that it's, it's not that he's going to be Babylonian forever right but yet, at the same time, he's active. So, Van Joonan will think that his paradigm actually helps you be more culturally engaging, but in a biblical way. Does that make sense? So God, of course, decrees things to be the way they are today. He preserves it to be it is, but does God approve of it? In other words, is it supposed to be the case that we live amidst a people uh, uh, that are religiously diverse in their confessions? Is it supposed to be the case where the world is made up of different uh, believers, whether Christian or non-Christian? And how do we as Christians wrestle with that tension? Are we supposed to be content with the way things are today in a way that actually makes their engagement with the world detached, right? And and we could even ask further questions than that. Is the theocratic new creation and new heavens really that discontinuous? Really that distinct from the present order? Because if Adam had obeyed, right, Van Junin argues that the present world will be destroyed also as well, and and a new creation will be will be will take place. But I thought that the new creation, new heavens, new earth is isn't it this world? Isn't it this world completely renewed? It's not a new new creation, but it's a recreation of this present order. Those are some questions that I think we need to ask. So okay, let me just go through the questions that I put there. Are you guys still with me? How are you how are you guys all doing? Okay, we're all s oh okay yeah, Wilson. I think just put it a bit, like yeah. the guess okay. Because the church the work is part of the church how do we say that the church is a purely spiritual and not natural. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. And, um, yeah. <laughs> so, so I, th- I think your question can be, your question can be put in this way. Is the spiritual and natural kingdom really two different realms? Or are they actually more intertwined? Do they blend together in a really complicated manner? You see what I mean? Um, And we're going to see this, because Van Joon is going to have a really tough idea accounting for concepts like the Christian family. We may concede to him, okay, it may look difficult for us to conceive of a Christian view of math, a Christian view of cooking or food or something like that. Do I do think that there is, right? What about a Christian family, right? If there's such a thing as a Christian family, is that natural or spiritual? It's obviously natural, because it's still a family, but isn't a Christian family way more than something natural? Isn't, doesn't the church make use of Christian families? Aren't Christian families normed by certain things that are completely different than natural families? I think those are serious questions. And things like the Sabbath come. You're going to appreciate that. Things like the Sabbath as a Christian family. Things like infant baptism, right? So these are serious questions that we need to ask to Van Drunen and, and to Kingdom Theolo- Theology. Here's the first question that I put there in your, in your handout. The first question I've already passed on. Is there really... No continuity between the present form, which is passing, and the new heavens and the new earth. Is the present creation really never meant to last, even if Adam had obeyed? In other words, is everything that we see today really so perishable? I think Van Joon is going to have a really tough, tough job handling texts like Isaiah 60, where the final vision, the final glory of Israel, which I take to be the church, will be the fact that all the nations, all Christians, I take it, from every nation, bring in the glories of their cultural products towards the final heaven and the new earth. And, and the second question, I think, is really pertinent as well. Is natural reason really universally clear and accessible given the entrance of sin? Doesn't ruling out the Bible for public discourse hinder us from exposing how sin has affected our reasons and intuitions? In other words, Van Joon is going to say things like, We don't need the Bible to argue for people to be honest and mature, for people to be reasonable. But I'm going to argue against this and say, is justice, reason, and general morality really absolutely clear apart from Scripture? Can we really argue with two different worldviews what justice basically is, what morality basically is, even in the natural sphere? Don't we need the Bible for that? And shouldn't Christians be an amazing witness by using the scriptures to say that what the natural world is groping for, the, the justice, the mercy, the, the, the general conceptions of morality that they need, shouldn't we as Christians say that they could find that in the Bible? That the Bible is supposed to be used as well to inform us what basic justice and morality is? And related to this is question number three. Notice in, in Van Junitz's demarcation and distinction between the spiritual kingdom and the natural kingdom. Right? The natural kingdom is completely fine in and of itself. He would have to argue that because God approves things to be separated into two kingdoms, two basic realms, the natural kingdom could function by itself and the spiritual kingdom is an addition on top of a properly functioning natural sphere. Now, I think this really blunts the church's witness because now the church cannot say things like, society needs the presence of Christians for society to be improved. In other words, if you just take the spiritual kingdom out and all you have is a natural kingdom, Van Junen's rhetoric, I think, leads us to believe that this church has nothing to contribute or unique to say in the natural sphere. And what I think that does is when you go to your public jobs, your your public states of life, you would have no basis to counter this present culture other than general arguments from reason alone. And I think what that does to us is that it becomes very unclear to argue why Christianity is necessary or helpful for society to function in the first place. Does that make sense? And I wonder, there's an inkling in me Van Drunen writes from a very American context, and I wonder if he could assume that the spiritual kingdom is not really necessary for the natural kingdom precisely because America has a long history of Christian influence. Maybe he is assuming that the natural kingdom is completely fine You could generally agree between Christians and non-Christians, secular folks and Christian folks, precisely because the culture in which he writes has depended upon Christian influence in the first place i don 't think we can have general notions of guilt, justice, and morality in a different context in the way that we can probably assume more in the context of america you, you guys see you guys see the the, the push that i 'm arguing for here. Imagine arguing for general notions of justice and guilt in a context where honor and shame is primary, like ours. Imagine arguing for notions of punishment and and general morality where Our culture is functionally not like that at all. Though our culture functions the categories of shame and honor, image management and external experiences, right? That's the sort of push here in a way that isn't in America. I wonder if Van Joonan is actually assuming way too much. And he even admits this. I put this quote uh, right below three. The state should not overstep the bounds that God has established. It has no right to operate contrary to his moral law. His moral law means things like not killing, uh, those sort of things, you know, and he's going to argue this is why we don't advocate for abortion, things like that. But is it really clear what God's moral law is to the unbeliever who works in the state without Scripture? Isn't the fall so intrusive and so wide-ranging that even what we think we know by reason could be intimately skewed by self-deception? And how could we inform the people of God's moral law if Scripture cannot be used at all in the public sphere? And finally, question number four, is this not schizophrenic? Who lives like this? If we know the Bible and if the Spirit really informs us in Scripture, right, if we are truly regenerated Christians, we do not live as if there's two boxes into our heads. Where, here's some propositions you know from scripture, it applies to a different place. Here's some propositions you know from reason that apply to a different place. We are organic beings that incorporate everything that we know and everything that we do. We do not and cannot live dualistically precisely because we are not machines that access different hermetically sealed silos of information that apply to two different realms. Everything you know and everything that you are informs everything that you do. I think Van Joonan is functionally advocating for a schizophrenic anthropology, a schizophrenic doctrine of man that says that we can turn off one side of information and turn on another side of information in such a way where it could advocate that Christians should just freely choose to be hangmen. I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure about making those kinds of claims. So, with that being said, actually, any questions this far? I think those are serious questions that we need to ask Van Joonan and, and two-kingdom theology. Any questions so far? Okay. Now, I want you guys to, to notice the, the, uh, the, the differences now between this view, the two-kingdom theologian, and what I have called, or what is historically called, the two-cities view. The two-cities view, in terms of metaphysics. The two-cities view, which is, I think, advocated by, firstly, St. Augustine, and it's the city of God, which I know a couple of you are reading, uh, which is fantastic. The two-cities view. The two-cities view argues that fundamentally, there are not two different realms, but two different kinds of persons. There are not two different locations or spheres, primarily, but there is two different covenantal estates and not realms. That fundamentally... We have God as the Creator relating with different people in a singular realm. And what is Augustine's focus? Augustine's focus is not two distinct realms, but different people, whether they are in Christ or in Adam. Forgive my stickman In Christ or in Adam. So fundamentally for Augustine, he's not going to ask if reality is composed of a natural realm versus a spiritual realm but he's going to ask whether you are in Christ or in Adam. That's the first question that you're going to ask. Are you in Christ or are you in Adam? So what informs your ethics as we're going to see later on is not the question of you're asking where I am, am I in church or am I in the public sphere? You're going to ask the question, who am I? What determines my destiny? What determines my ethics? What determines how I know? Who am I? And if this is the kind of question that you want to ask, there is no dualism that could be allowed. You see what I mean? If this is the question that you're going to ask, you are the same person in church as you are outside of the church. You are the same person in Christ, uh, whether you are whatever job that you're taking. And therefore, you're accountable to Christ in every job that you're taking. And if you're accountable to Christ and you know Christ through Scripture, Scripture is absolutely foundational and relevant for every area of life. Look at the uh, quote here by Augustine. We notice that he mentions the two cities in this quote. We see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love reaching the point of content for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carries as far as contempt of self. Notice what he's saying here. If the two cities are marked not by two different realms or locations, right, but marked primarily by personal identity and loves, can you be a citizen of two cities? Can you be a single person in two different cities, fundamentally speaking? Because remember, in in Van Joon's case, you are an individual operating in two different kingdoms, right? You are a citizen of both kingdoms. For Augustine, can you be a citizen of two cities or kingdoms? No, right? Absolutely not. You could only be a citizen of a single city. And what determines you to be in that city is whether or not you're ultimately in love with God or in love with self. And so for Augustine... What you see is a picture of, of people, citizens of two different cities, in a single, natural creation. You see what I mean? Here's somebody from the city of God, here's somebody from the city of man, here's somebody from the city of God, and you get the picture. It's a single location and realm, focused on citizens of different cities, in a single realm. You notice the nuance of that? It, it creates, I think, a very different picture, all together. And metaphysically, what this does is is that when you go to church and when you go to the realm, there's a blending of the natural and the, the, the spiritual in such a way that you can't really demarcate clearly, right? What is natural and what is spiritual. There's going to be a natural aspect to everything, just as there's a spiritual aspect of everything. Inhabitants of the city of man are in love with the self, but in the same natural world, such that everything they do in the natural realm is informed by spiritual suppression of God. You see what I mean? And everything that the Christian do in any realm is going to be informed by his ultimately religious position before God himself. So the orientation of this is going to be fundamentally very different. And so for Augustine and the Reformed, uh, other sides of the Reformed faith and the two cities view, it's not only is this realm inhabited by people from two cities, the new creation in the present, I'm sorry, the new creation in the final state is going to be something continuous with this realm. So notice now there is no vertical relation between what's spiritual and what's natural. The spiritual and natural are kind of combined here, and now the focus is not on what is spiritual and natural, but the focus is on the present age and the future age. The present age, and the future age. And I'm just going to sketch this graph, we could ask questions about it. What Christians are supposed to do, as citizens of the city of God, if they're chosen by God here, is to use the Bible, responsibly, to witness, to this new creation, in every area of life, And this new creation, even though it is, in terms of the two different ages, brought in by God unilaterally and not by human works, this new creation is going to come in unilaterally from God. Christians are called to witness the new creation in a shadowy, veiled form, in a shadowy, veiled form, such that the new creation, when we as Christians are already witnessing to it, should, in a sense... Of course, it will be surprising, it will be amazing, but should, in a sense, be expected to be in continuity with how Christians already live in the present world. And if this is the case, if the spiritual and the natural are always mixed up together, and if we are citizens of a future city, but in the present order, witnessing to the new creation that is going to be brought in by God in the future age, that means that Christians could witness in every area of life what this heavenly city is going to look like. They don't just say that I am just in a natural common kingdom here. They don't just say that we are detached in our vocation because we know it's going to perish. They can faithfully and honestly say that we, in our daily work, is witnessing to a future community, a future city, where only citizens of the city of God are. Does that make sense? In this sense, in what sense can we say that there is, for example, a Christian company? In a lot of ways, we may not differ too much from the two-kingdom theologian in arguing that the Christian company is the one that is honest, that cares about corporate responsibility, that cares about, about, about morality and justice, and empowering their workers, and all those sort of things. But at the same time, we want to argue that those are, if you really operate that way as a business, distinctly Christian values. They're not merely natural. We want to emphasize that what is natural is God's, and Christians know what is truly natural, and sin has rendered the natural completely distorted. Okay, that's the general sketch of the metaphysics. Is there anything unclear at this point? You see how this could be different in terms of its emphasis. And it's very subtle. It's not like I have a one-to-one correlation with the two kingdom guy says this, the two cities guy says this. It's a different sketch altogether. It's almost a different animal altogether you guys have any questions about that so far? Any clarifications you want to ask? Differences between the two cities' metaphysics and the two kingdoms' metaphysics? <laughs> Sam, yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. The church manifests a new creation in the rest of every area of life because in the church, in the institution of Sunday worship, Right? you see and feel and know that everybody lives for God and worships God in a way that they don't see in every other area of life. Sunday is supposed to be a special time in which believers can know who are in the kingdom of God in a visible sense and who worship God, partaking in the sacraments together that mark them out as a distinct people living in wilderness. We can still affirm that we're living in the wilderness, but notice the wilderness is not two different realms and we go between one and the other but the wilderness is all around us. Even in the church, we still feel a sense of the wilderness, I believe, because we still know that in the church, there's the poor to take care of. In the church, there are things to do. It's not, not yet final. There's still discipline in the church that in a way is not in the future, right? So even in the church, there are wilderness aspects that will not be carried on in the future. And I think there are, there are quote unquote, sinful natural aspects, right? So I want to say yes, absolutely. The church is unique and special and it witnesses it to, to a greater degree as, as an institution. But at the same time, there's, there's natural, sinful aspects to every area of life, just as there is in the church. All right. So, here is, um, epistemologically speaking, I'm, I'm going to go this, through this really quickly, guys. There is no bifurcation between what we can know by nat- from natural law and what we can know from scripture. Scripture is always going to be informing everything that we do. Precisely because we know that sin has so corrupted our minds that everything that we do is also corrupted by sin. And we need to be very attentive to the false intuitions that we often could have. Look at what John Frame says here. Van Junen, in this little quote, Van Junen neglects to discuss the difficulty, the difficulty of arguing ethical issues from natural law. People often say that it is difficult to argue ethical issues from Scripture in a society that does not honor Scripture's authority. But it is even more difficult to argue from natural law, for natural law is not a written text. Even though it is objectively valid, there is no way of gaining public agreement as to what it says as long as we simply exchange opinions about what the natural law says. Scripture is an external basis that is clearly written out, and we have a basis from which to argue what is God's moral law versus what's not God's moral law. If we take away scripture, away from the public sphere, we have no basis to argue that. We have no basis or standard to appeal to that is concrete. So, uh, this, this actually muddies the water a lot, doesn't it? The clarity that we get from Van and structure is simply not found in the two cities structure, right? This means that in the public sphere and in the state, if you are a Christian, there should be some meaningful sense in which you would want to use scripture and informing how you publicly address the people, informing how you do your policies. But, in a way that does not neglect the distinction between church and state, it is actually making the waters a lot more muddy, it's making everything a lot more complicated. But life isn't always so simple, right? So there's a focus on common grace and not natural law, and I don't think we have the time or energy to go through common grace and natural law, so we're going to skip that. So the ethics, remember that the church is central for the two-kingdom view, but it has to also remain central for our view. Remember that that is an axiom. It's one of the five things that we noted at the beginning that we cannot compromise. And, and for the ethics of this view, the two-cities view, there's a focus not merely of the church as an end in itself that transcends culture. There's also a focus of the church that transforms culture. Hermann Bovink uses the analogy of the church as a pearl and the church as a leaven. And I think this is a really useful analogy for us, because if the church is truly a pearl, we understand that the church and the mission and the duty of the church are, and in itself, central to what we do as Christians. When you come and access a pearl, for example, right, you don't ask the question, oh, I can't eat this, it's not useful. right? A pearl is something you gain as an end in itself. Just as you ask, maybe, you know, if... if we want to think even more expensive terms, diamonds, right? You don't ask, well, how are diamonds useful? A diamond's not an instrument for anything. You possess a diamond, you possess a, di- a pearl as an end in itself for the beauty of itself. In the same way, the church's existence, the church's worship, are end in itself. It transcends the culture in a way that misses the point if you're asking if the church should transform or, 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 or as an instrument to redeem culture. But notice here that the the church is not merely a pearl. The church is a leaven, right? What is a leavening agent in terms of bakery, right? A leavening agent is that which makes the bread expand. It influences the bread in such a way when you bake the bread, right? It expands and, and the dough becomes something completely different. In the same way, the church is not merely a pearl, but a transforming effect. We should expect that if a city it's generally populated by more Christians, it should feel different. Society should feel different. We should see less poverty. We should see more justice administered. We should see more mercy being being uh, administered. We shouldn't expect it to look very similar as any natural world or natural realm populated by non-Christians. You should feel the effects of the gospel in every area of life such that everything that you do is informed by it. Now, so in this sense, I want to introduce us to a distinction also by Hermann Bavink and Abraham Kuyper between the church as an institute and the church as an organism. This is something that has no role whatsoever in Two Kingdom theology. The church as an institute and the church as an organism, church as an institute corresponds to the church as a pearl, the church as an organism. Corresponds to the church as a leavening influence. They don't exactly correspond to the church as visible or invisible, but we won't get into that. Um, The church as an institute is what forms the Sunday body, right? You're ordained into offices like elders and deacons, and you function together in a distinct way. You are a society and an institute that is marked out from different spheres of life. But the church is not merely an institute, the church is also an organism. What do I mean by that? In other words, the church is not relegated or or limited to what happens on a Sunday morning and the work that goes there, but the church is also could be identified by the individuals within the church. That the church doesn't stop being the church when we walk out of Sunday. That the church's individuals dispersed after Sunday remains the church in a sense the church is an organism that goes into the city as much as it also forms an institute that meets on Sunday. Now, therefore, right, that, that reinforces this idea that the, the church's inhabitants, inhabitants of the city of God, continue to be sent out and dispersed throughout the city, and they're supposed to make a difference. It's an organism. It, it lives, it moves, it goes around, it transforms, it, it influences, right? This is a very classic... Kuyperian, Neo-Calvinistic distinction. Church is an institute. Church as an organism. How many of you guys can tell me who Abraham Kuyper was? Simon, you're not allowed. He was a civil servant. Tell me more. that's good he was a civil Abraham Kuyper was a civil servant he was a theologian in the 19th century from the Netherlands and he was one of the first to argue that the church is a distinction between an institute and organism and to reflect that Kuyper pushed for not only a Christian political party a Christian university but also he was a theologian and a pastor in, in in a period of his life he wants to argue that the church has implications for every single part of society and should therefore work towards transforming culture And so, when I say that this is a Kuyperian distinction, I merely mean that this is a distinction formed by Abraham Kuyper. And just as there is such a thing as a Christian family, informed by Christian values, I also think that there's such a thing as Christian work and a Christian view of every area of life. And Van Joonan's gonna quip and he's gonna say, what's a Christian view of food? Everybody agrees what food is and stuff like that. Where I think he's, again, only saying that because he's informed by in a Christian secular society in America. But a Christian view of food, for example, is, I think, biblically speaking, the fact that every food is clean. Have you guys thought about that? That you could go to a place like the States and there is no stigma if you eat pork in front of everyone. That you can walk around and, and carry pork and say, that's fine. That there's a, there's a Christian view of food, that freedom that you could feel in places where Christian culture is thriving is something completely missing, say, if you went to somewhere else where eating maybe cows or or pork is considered taboo. And if, if, imagine that sort of location where eating pork or eating cows are taboo, what if the general population become more and more Christian? What if churches thrive there, evangelize well, and the gospel is preached in week in and week out? Shouldn't we expect there to be a transformation of how that culture views food? animals and creation. So, again, I think that Van Joonin is his rhetoric only sticks because he's living in a culturally homo- homogeneous uh, uh, place where, where everybody assumes this basic blanket of commonality. Everybody generally has the same view of things. But if you were only, I think, to travel the world a little bit more, he's going to see it's going to be very much more complicated than that. So, there's a Christian view of work. There's a Christian view of food a lot of the things that Van Junin takes for granted as merely natural views of things are actually Christian views of things. So the political and common sphere administers justice and mercy amidst religious diversity by God's decree and preservation, but it is not ultimately approved by God. God does not intend for us to always render what is to Caesar and what is to Jesus. God does not ultimately intend that we give the state what belongs to the state and to God what belongs to God. God ultimately intends that all things are one under his rule and we should witness to that as far as we can. I'm just close there for um, more questions. That was a lot of information in about 90 minutes. Um, Are there any questions that we want to reflect on? Let's open this up. What do you think are some implications after hearing all of this? But let's bring it back to the twin errors that we saw in the, first, in the first few minutes of our time here, right? What implications does this view have? Or two kingdom of view, if you wanna bring that back, it's fine. But in what way is this view, for example, not triumphalist transformationalism? You weren't you were here, maybe. But, but triumphalist transformationalism, again, you see this in books in all sorts of different places, right? You know, nine, nine principles for kingdom living, or something like that, or, or biblical principles for, for healthy eating or, or financial management. These are books that you see everywhere. But how do we not go there if we advocate for this view? That's one question we could ask. Let me me also be provocative here because we're in a Jakarta context, right? We may know some very powerful Christian businessmen who argue that because we're Christians, we should enlarge God's kingdom in such a way where we take over buildings, we take over every area of life, and win them and run other people who are non-Christians over. How is this not that? We need to buy Christian schools. We need to buy Christian buildings and Christian malls. How is this not that? Or, does, or is this that? What's the difference? Motivation. The motivation? Yes. Love, love of self, love of neighbor. But they all say, you know, we're enlarging the kingdom of God. We're bringing God's kingdom here. We're witnessing to this future kingdom. Shouldn't we, therefore, as Christians, take over businesses in a very ruthless way? Of course not, but, but but why? But why? Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Should we kingdomize everything? Or anything? Not one person. Why not? Because <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like especially good at
0: something, then yeah, I should kingdomize that in my context. Yeah. somebody else in my church is good at
1: should that. And What do you mean by kingdomize? Should that be a verb? Yeah, a verb. right in a Christian way, because I think, I think this is a really important line right here, right? What does this line tell us? It's not now. There is no progression between what we do. See, the line is not from here to here, right? There is no progression between what we do and the final day. If this is the case, you don't make Jakarta more Christian if you suddenly become the, the president of Indonesia, and you make every single politician Christian. It's not as if the kingdom of God was this small, and because now you took over Jakarta, boom, it's this small. It's, big, it's that big. You see what I mean? There is no one-to-one correlation between what you do and the future kingdom. There is, in other words, an irrevocable gap here, and the new creation is brought in by God himself. There is no progress. You see what I mean? There is no expectation between the, of progress between our cultural endeavors and God's. If that's the case, I think it mitigates. it mitigates what we do in terms of the natural realm, in terms of physically speaking. It will be a mistaken idea for Christian businessmen to try to take over different areas of the city running out non-Christians. You know, our power as City of God people is a power of gospel and spiritual witness, and through activities of love and mercy, not by the sword, because we're not the state, but at the same time, not by ruthless business practices, because I think that's really something we see and we need to be careful of in a Jakarta context. Lucas. What do you think, why do you think that word could be helpful or unhelp, unhelpful? That's a really good way to put, to put it. Why, why do you think that word could be unhelpful? Why do you think that word transform could be helpful? Right. So the word transform could be used in a very physicalized, progressive sense, as if the new creation is ushered in by our works here, right? You see how that word could invoke that kind of imagery? Transforming could be helpful in the sense where, you know, if we have a city populated morally by Christians than non Christians, we should expect the culture to be quite different, right? It should. So, uh, there's a sense in which words like cultural engagement and influence is better than cultural transformation, right? Influence and engagement rather than. Tra- okay, Don, yeah. I'm not disagreeing with you, I follow you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we would say that it has nothing to do in terms of what we do, but it will have more uh, portions of continuity than discontinuity. In a sense where we could expect there to be human cultures that are very much alike this culture, just as Jesus' resurrection body was different enough that the disciples couldn't recognize him immediately, but could recognize them, you know, see what I mean? Because we shouldn't abstract things like businesses and, and families away from, from being human. Businesses is merely the exchange of goods and services, exchange of talents and, and, and skills, you see what I mean? In other words, then we should expect there in the new heavens and the new earth to affirm work in a way that we see work today. That's, that's, that's sort of the implication, whereas Van Junen is going to argue we should have no confidence that the new creation will be anything like we have today. Even though we don't usher in the new creation, there's some analogs. So it's, it's analogous to, to, to the present present day. And not only that, we could say that there's a spiritual aspect and a natural aspect to every area of life. It's not a clearly demarcated realm. Yes, it's called uh, postmillennial theonomy, but but we we, we didn't go there. So. Um, so, and post. Why is everybody laughing? It wasn't supposed to be funny. But, but the post millennial theonomy, and I didn't cover this because I think it's outside the bounds of Reformed theology, they would argue that the new heavens and the new earth. But this, I guess, I guess it is helpful as a contrast, right? That, that Christians and the new heavens and the new earth are related maybe in this way. I didn't think about how to grab this yet, but it's more like this is the present world and there's just upward trajectory until we get to the kingdom of God on the basis of what Christians do and as the basis of Christians taking over more and more places. Why is it, uh, why is it a theonomy? Because we're called to produce a kingdom of God here and now in a physical sense. It's also post-millennial in a sense where uh, um, um, God's reign physical reign has started it's post it's after it has started millennial just means the God's. let's just say God's kingdom kingdom activity now so it's post millennial so it's post kingdom and at the same time it's a theonomy that we're, we're supposed to uphold now so whatever we do now if we fail they could actually say things like the kingdom of God has also stepped back a bit in our cultural endeavors and products you see what I mean? And, and most extreme versions of theonomy would say we should create our own country, a, Christ, a distinctly Christian nation. And, and I want you guys to notice that whether you're two cities or two kingdoms, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. Only a theonomy would say that there is such a thing as a Christian nation. So both two-kingdom theologians and two-cities theologians would say that what's going on in the Republican convention In the United States is completely anti-biblical. If you want to advocate for a statesman like Donald Trump and you want to be a pastor who goes on the Republican convention and say that Jesus is pleased with this event, you've missed the fact that the kingdom of God is not brought on by you. You see what I mean? The rhetoric of America as a Christian nation is, I think, the worst sort of example of what we don't want to be. You see what I mean? And I think that's a massive uh, implication. Should we, as a church, be so involved in political parties and motivate a single political party? That's a very concrete situation. What's the obvious answer in light of this, if you're not a theonomist? No, right? Why not? Because God's kingdom is not of this world. We may be witnesses to a future kingdom, but we're witnessing still in a present order that will one day not last. Even though the future order is something um, um, analogous to the present order, today's present leaders and present kings will no longer be kings in the future order. You could say that, yeah. The two cities view is, is in between. Right, right, right. I think you could say that. So he's saying that the two-cities view is kind of the third way between post-millennial theonomy on the one hand and two-kingdom theology on the other. You can say that. There's also another view here, which is why I kind of hesitated about the middle way, and it's a dispensationalist, uh, I would say Platonism maybe, but that's where the, this heaven is a spiritual, not physical thing, and that's completely discontinuity. You know what I mean? But I'm not going to address you know, those two polar opposites. If you're a two, let me just end with this, okay? Right? If you're a two cities guy, if you if you came out of this event and you're saying I don't, I really don't like two kingdom theology, I want to go with a two cities guy and I'll read up more about it because I'm not meant to give you every single detail, right? Because that's just going to be way too much in two hours, right? I want you guys to know that if you're a two cities guy, you're making life a lot harder for yourself. You're going to make life a lot harder for yourself because. One, you do believe that the Bible is relevant for every area of life, but two, you can't use it the same way in the church and outside of the church. If you're a two-kingdom theologian, life is pretty clear-cut. Life is pretty clear-cut, and I think people could live with a peaceful conscience as a two-kingdom theologian. But if you're a two-cities guy living in a city like Jakarta, and you want to say things like, we should witness to a future city in this corrupt kind of situation, you've made life a lot harder for yourself. And I think that's one implication. You're going to have to wrestle with this all your life. And if you're stepping away and saying, I don't have any clear answers, good. Good. That's how I want you to feel. If we just left with two-kingdom theology, I think we would have left with, that's pretty clear. I could go out, and I know exactly what to do. I know exactly what to say. But if you're a two-cities guy, you will live your whole life wrestling With this, and you will live in anxiety. You're going to live anticipating the future glory so much more because you're going to feel tensions everything you do, and everything you say, and everywhere you go. And I think the most, I actually think that's a virtue because the most mature of Christians understand that it is not easy to live in this present order. The most mature Christians understand that there's a longing to be had for a future city, but at the same time, a striving to be had in the present order. That there's ultimately a, an, an, an ongoing dissatisfaction-satisfaction dialectic going on, almost, right, in this present world, where you're always going back and forth between joy and toil. And I just want to leave us with that. If you're leaving this place and you're saying to yourself, "Man, I got a lot more weeding to do, a lot more work to think about," I've done my job well, I think. But if you left here thinking you're a two-kingdom theologian, we could talk afterwards. <laughs> So let me just uh, close with that and let's close in prayer, right? Father, we thank you so much for uh, what you revealed to us. We thank you that your truth is in so many ways so um, inexpressible and ineffable, Lord, that there's almost too much for us to mine. We thank you, Lord God, for the wisdom of, of those who are smarter and wiser than we are, so that we can depend on them for these sort of issues, that we are not alone, that we have each other, and we know, Lord God, that the church as an institute and the church as an organism could only function well when we are united in diversity, depending mutually upon one another, bearing each other's burdens, weeping with those who weep, and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Pray, Lord God, that today is not just an academic session, Pillar Lord God, for a, a, an ongoing stimulation of our of our lives and work. We pray, Lord God, that we feel the tension of living in the in-between, of the living in a present world that is supposed to witness to a future world. But at the same time, we understand, Lord God, that so much religious and, and negatively uh, affecting consequences and impulses are within us and outside of us, Father. We pray, Lord God, that we would be able to pray consistently that this is your world, and we are supposed to live in it and embrace it And understand that this world is meant to last forever. But we continually wrestle with our own sins and the sins of others. Pray, Lord God, for our faithfulness. And we pray, Lord God, for our joy in Jesus Christ amidst the hardship that we live in. Ambassadors of this world. Part of this world, but not of it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much, guys.